39. So I'll be reading that in just a few moments. Wanted to, uh, before I read, give you a brief reminder of this book of Romans. Um, if you're joining us just for the first time or if you've been here since we started it back in January, uh, then hopefully this will be review for you. Or if you're new, hopefully this will give you some, a framework to understand the book. So the point of Romans is this, that the gospel is God's power. That's chapter 1, verse 16. The gospel is God's power, which means that the gospel is life. We need it to live. It brings us to life and it keeps us alive so that we never graduate from the gospel. We never, we never move on from the gospel. The gospel is God's power for everything. Second, remember that Romans is a journey. If you've never read Romans before, I'd encourage you to read it because it will have a tendency to stretch you in all kinds of ways. It won't just stretch you in your understanding of who God is and maybe who you are, but it will just challenge you to grow in your understanding of pretty much everything. And it will also challenge you to focus on maybe what's the main thing. And maybe you've gotten off course a little bit. Romans is a book that will take you on a journey to stretch you and focus you. And finally, the third thing in our framework, we got the point, we got the fact that it's a journey and we've been going this journey together. And finally, I want you to know, and I, and I feel responsible for this as your pastor, I wanna remind you, Romans will force you to face your greatest fears. And in particular, when we look at Romans 8 today, you might have to face a fear of what if God is bigger than you have ever been taught? What are you gonna do about that? What, what if you are not as powerful as you've been told? You're gonna have to face that. I have to face that. It's part of what I had to come to grips with when I studied Romans. How big and powerful God is and how small I am and how insignificant I am and that I really don't have that much power. Really don't. So maybe that'll hit you this morning, maybe it won't. So I wanted to give you that framework. Uh, the second thing is I just wanna give you a quick update on my health. So um, Thursday, I turned the corner. So I feel much better today than I did even Thursday. Um, but um, I have, today is my last day of uh, pill treatment. So my chemo drug that I take through pills, I have one more dosage tonight. I got three more pills tonight that I gotta take. So I'm really looking forward to being over. This will be a three-week stretch where I've had treatments every week for three weeks, so I'm really glad to be done with it tonight. Uh, and then I'll have seven days off, so I'm really excited about that. So if, if you would like to pray, uh, you can pray that my endurance would increase this week. I would love if you would pray that. Uh, you can pray that I would be more present this week, present with my family, present in my job, uh, present with my friends. You know, when you're, when you're on chemo, you're just not all there. And believe it or not, I'm still not all there today, but it's better than it was last week. Um, so you can pray that I'll be present. Um, there also the potential that um, my, the, the amount of, something has to change with one of the drugs. I'll just leave it at that. So I have an appointment coming up and if you wanna pray about wisdom and discernment for that, I would certainly appreciate that as well. Um, I'm not tolerating the drugs as well as uh, sh I should. Things are taking a harder hit on me than, uh, than they should. So if you wanna pray about that, I would certainly appreciate that. 
Um, not because I figure it's supposed to be a walk in the park, okay? It's just uh, um, I shouldn't be really down for 11 days. That's just not good. Um, and I still have neuropathy, and, and that's not good either, even though it's dissipated largely. But anyway, so if you want to pray for that, that'd be great. If you want to pray for those ways, that'd be great. If you just want to thank God that I've made it through a couple more treatments, I welcome that as well. So what, however you feel led to pray, if you're the praying sort, please do. That's an update. I'll give you another one next week. Let's look at Romans 8. Listen to this. This is God's Word, verses 28 through 39. Listen to this, all right? Listen to this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called and those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, what, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That'll get you there. That'll get you there. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word. And in this passage in particular, you really let us into your mind. And it is just simply astonishing. Um, as we look at these words together, Holy Spirit, would you help us to understand what they mean? Would you take those, the, the truth that we learned together and would you bring it to bear on our lives? And in all things, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would point us to Jesus. Remind us that we're not here to learn how to be a good person. We're not, learn how, we're not here to learn how to be nicer. We're here because we need to know about Jesus. So Holy Spirit, bring us to him. And again and again, make Jesus irresistible. Make our Savior and all that he has done irresistible to us. That we might find life in him. Life for this week and forever. For we pray in his name. Amen. Remember in Romans 8, we're thinking about this idea of recalibration. 
Do you remember the illustration we gave a few weeks ago that I got a crack in the windshield of my car and, and, the, and the people that take out your windshield and put a new one in got it down to a science? But with a lot of new vehicles, once you get a new windshield in, you got to take it to the dealership because they have to recalibrate all of the safety features in your car. Remember this? So God wants us to be recalibrated with the gospel. So how did your week go? Anybody have any rocks hit the windshield of your life? Anybody get any scratches this week, dents? Everything was just smooth this week for you, right? The windshield of life is getting hit all the time with things. Or maybe turn it this way. Do you scratch anybody's windshield this week? You throw any rocks at it? Crack windshield here or there? We need to be recalibrated with the gospel all the time, every week, because we're facing things relentlessly. So remember, recalibrating with the gospel so far has looked like this. There's no condemnation. That's how the chapter starts. Chad last week brought us to realize that not only is there no condemnation, but we're family. And all of that because of what Jesus has done. And we have to constantly be recalibrated with those truths. So today we're going to take the same journey. We're thinking about being recalibrated with the gospel. And we're on the same journey and we're going to make the same stops that we had the last couple weeks. So if you're new and haven't been here the last couple weeks, here's our journey. We're going to start with a conclusion. We're going to see why the conclusion is true. And then we're going to think together about living the conclusion. Those are our stops on the journey of recalibrating our lives with the gospel. Got it? We okay? And if none of that makes sense, you can come up to me afterwards. All right? So let's jump in. Start with the conclusion. Look how this chapter ends. What's the conclusion? The conclusion is there is no separation. Think about that. Let your heart, open up your heart to that. Open up your mind to that. As you sit here this morning, there is no separation between you and God and his love. All because of what Christ has done. There's no separation. There's nothing that is too high. There's no wall that is so high that God's love can't get over it. There's no depth. There's no, there's no low point in your life. It doesn't matter how depressed, how down, how sick you are, God's love can still get there. It doesn't matter who's in control. It doesn't matter what political power is in force. They can't stop the love of God in Christ. There is no separation between you and the love of God. It doesn't matter if people are coming after you with swords, with weapons. They cannot separate God's love from your life. No conflict, no amount of shame. That's why Paul mentions this nakedness here, which you might think, whoa, that doesn't belong. No, he's talking about shame. There's no amount or degree of shame that can separate the love of God from your life. Nothing. There's nothing in space. There's nothing on earth. There's nothing present in your life. There's nothing in your future that can separate you from God's love. God, a relationship with God begins with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. That's the conclusion. And do you know why this is true? Look at verse 28 and 29 and 30. Why can there be no separation? Why can nothing 
get between God's love and me. 28, 29, and 30. We'll start with verse 28, which of the two is 28, 29, 30. Uh, 28 is a little more obvious, we might say. 29, 30 might be a little less obvious to us until we think about it. So why is there no separation? Verse 28 tells us, because all things work together for good. You see that? The reason there's no separation is because all things work together for good. God doesn't say some things work together for good. He says all things. That means all the good things that happen in your life work out for good. It means all the bad things that happen in your life work out for good. Let me tell you, I'm really thankful for that right now because I don't consider going through cancer a good thing. You might, I don't, I think it's horrific. I can't stand it. But somehow, God is working this for good. That means this. If you are a follower of Jesus, good things will happen to you and bad things will happen to you. And if you have been taught or you have heard, if you have heard that Christianity, if you have heard Christianity in this way, um, good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, I'm really sorry that you've been taught that. And with every fiber of my being, I would love to meet with you and show you why that is not true. But somehow, we have heard if you're good, good things happen. If you're bad, bad things happen. And even worse than that, if something bad happens in your life, it's because you're not doing something you're supposed to be doing. So if you just fix that, then things will turn out for good. That's not what this is saying either. Or even worse, if good things are happening to you and we put it in Eastern North Carolina, Eastern North Carolina lingo, it's good clean living. Friends, that is not biblical in Christianity at all. And if that's what you've been taught, I'm so sorry. God's power is so much greater. All that other that I just described for you, if you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you get bad. That's, that's just self-help stuff that, that may have some Christian lingo in there or sprinkle with Christianity. That's not what the Bible says at all. Look at Jesus. No one was ever better than he was. And he got the wrath of God. He took on the curse. There was no one who was better than Jesus and he didn't get good with his life. He got an incredibly painful death. Right? Well, if that mentality, if you do good, you get good, and you're bad, you get bad, well, that just doesn't line up with Jesus at all. All things work together for good. That means when you're, whatever, wherever you are, going through good things, going through bad things, there's no separation. God works it all for good. Somehow, somehow, some way, in this life and the next, turns out for good. For those who love God. Now, I read that, and I'll be honest with you, if I was writing scripture, which I'm not, if I was writing scripture, I would have thought that God would say something like, for those who believe. Because I like to turn things into a formula. Oh, well, if I just believe, then I'm gonna get this, right? 
In other words, I also misunderstand faith and what it means to believe, <laughs> but God's working on that in my life too. But Paul says, for those who love God, at the end of the day, whether things are going great or whether things are not, do you love God? Not are you perfect. God's a person that you can take all your fears to and your anger and everything else. He can handle it all. At the end of the day, no matter what's happening in your life, do you love God? Even if you don't understand him, even if you're hanging on by a thread, do you love God? Not what he can give you, not what he does, just for God. Do you love God? Paul's saying the love of God is inseparable because all things work together for good for those who love God. Well, let's look at verse 29 and 30 because they tell us what may not be initially obvious to us. Matter of fact, before we do that, I want to illustrate verse 28 for you. That all things work together for good to those who love God. I took this illustration from a guy who's recently retired, and he was talking about um, after 18 years of um, planning a church and being a pastor of a church in New York, this is an illustration of Tim Keller, he was talking about being in ministry at this church for 18 years. Listen to this. I'll be happy to send this to you if anybody wants it. He says to his congregation one night, do you know why we're here tonight? There are a lot of reasons. All kinds of people have done so much to make this ministry and this church happen. But we could certainly say if Kathy and I had not come to New York 18 years ago or so to start the church, none of this would be here. Well, why? What's, what's the reason we came to New York to start the church? Because we joined a Presbyterian denomination that not only encouraged but gave us the freedom and set a priority for church planning. Why were we a member of that Presbyterian denomination? Because the last semester in seminary, I took two courses with the professor who convinced me I was theologically a Presbyterian. And that's the reason I went into the denomination. That's the reason I planted this church. But why did I take those two courses? Because at the very, very last minute, this man was able to come and teach those courses in spite of the fact there was a bureaucratic snag at the top that was keeping him from getting his visa. He, he was British. Well, what opened the snag? What happened? The answer is, one morning the dean was praying and saying, I don't know how we're going to get this guy here in time to teach these courses this semester. His prayer partner was a young man who was a student at the seminary. And he also happened to be one of the sons of the sitting president of the United States, Gerald Ford. When he asked the dean what he was praying about, and the dean told him, he says, well, you know, I have a name you could talk to that might get you through the bureaucratic snag. <laughs> and it did. It worked. So why did he have the power to get rid of that snag so the professor could come, so I could have the course, so I could change my views, so I could join the Presbyterian church, so I could come and plant this church so we could be here tonight? Only because Nixon resigned. <laughs> Gerald Ford never, ever, ever would have been president unless Nixon resigned. But why did Nixon have to resign? 
Because of the Watergate scandal. Well, why did the Watergate scandal happen? Because the people who were bugging the Democratic Party's offices, the night that they bugged it, they left the door open. And because a night watchman noticed a door was unlatched, he went in and it was all discovered. If that door had just been closed two more inches, we wouldn't be here tonight. Everything would have been changed. I have a question. Do you think that happened by accident? That that guy kept the door open instead of closing it? All he had to do was pull it or turn it around and say, is that door closed? He didn't. Do you think that happened by accident? If that didn't happen by accident, nothing happens by accident. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He says to his congregation, even Watergate happened for you. And he would add a million other things that we can't even imagine. Well, let's look at verse 29 and 30 to see what may not be so obvious. Why is the conclusion true that nothing can separate us from the love of God? Well, let me tell you what's not so obvious. You notice how verse 29 begins with four. It's it's making a causal connection between verse 28 and what follows. God's telling us all things work together for good. Now let me tell you why in a deeper way. What God does in 2930 is he lets us behind the curtain. He lets us to see what he thinks about your salvation and redemption. He lets you behind the curtain so you can understand from God's perspective what happens when you become a follower of Jesus. And if you've never heard this before, let me, let me briefly say this to you. There is a difference between driving a car and getting out of that car, popping the hood, and someone telling you what's under the hood and how the engine works. God is letting us pop the hood on salvation and look at all the components that are there and God is letting us see this is how the thing works. I know most of us just like driving the car. But it's important to know how the engine works. It's important to get in there and think about, well, what is actually happening? What did actually happen in my walk with God? How did I get here? And these verses tell you. So look at the components. Let's make a list of them. He foreknew, you see that? 2930, listen to these components. He foreknew, he predestined. There is conformity. He conformed us to the image of his son. That's what he's doing now. There is the idea of calling. There is the idea of justifying. There is the idea of glorifying. Do you see those there? You see them? I really mean this. Am I making up words? Okay, good, stay with me. Look at these components. God's saying these are parts of salvation. This is what it means to become a follower of Jesus. When God says that he foreknew, he's saying way more than God knows everything. We already know that. In the Bible, to foreknow is deeper language than just God knows something. It's communicating relationship. This is why Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount at the very end in chapter seven of Matthew would say, depart from me, I never knew you. Not because he didn't know who they were, but he didn't have a relationship with them. 
God is saying, foreknow. I foreknew that I was going to have a relationship with you. He also says that he's going to conform us to the image of his son. It's the idea that God is changing us from the inside out so that we might look more like Jesus. That's what God does. When you look at the text, who's doing these things? God. He foreknew. He is conforming us to the image of Jesus. Look at calling. You know what calling is? Purpose. God puts purpose in your life. So that is unmistakable and irresistible that your life is now being lived for God. That's what calling is. That means no matter whether you are a teacher, no matter what profession you're in, whether you're single, whether you're not, if you belong to God, he has put something in your very heart that means that it is unmistakable that you desire to serve God no matter who you are and what you're doing. That's calling. It means that he justifies you. He makes you right with him. Relationship is good because of what Jesus has done. And glorified. Do you see that one in there? Glorified. Here's the amazing thing about this, and I'm sorry we can only scratch the surface on this this morning, on all these really. What tense is glorified in? Past tense. God is telling you it is, it is as good as done. You can't stop it. To glorify means that God one day is going to make us absolutely perfect. And if you're here and you know Jesus, it's as good as done. You can bank on it because he's working all things for good, because he's called you, because he's conforming you, because he's put you in right relationship. So, but friend, you are on a trajectory of being perfect and you can't stop it because his grace is that powerful. It's greater than your sin and mine. Matter of fact, his grace is so powerful that you even start hating your own sin. And you start recognizing it more and more. That's how powerful the grace of God is. So now let's get to the elephant in the room. You notice I skipped one, right? Predestined. God also predestines. And I mean this with only a hint of sarcasm. Only a hint, seriously. Predestined means predestined. And I know that instinctively you don't like that term. You don't like that idea. We're Western, we are individualistic, and we hear God predestined something and we immediately think, oh, no free will? I don't want this, I don't know. Because in our minds, we hear that predestined, we immediately think to ourselves, well, it's either or. It's either God's sovereign or, or there's free will. It's either or. Because in the Western mindset, almost everything we think about has to be binary. And I'm just here to tell you, that's not the way the Bible talks. The Bible's not written to affirm all of Western culture. The Bible says you can't choose. It's not an either or question. It's a both and. In other words, the Bible says there's nuance. There's nuance to this, to this talk and this concept of predestination and free will. It's nuanced. If you have been taught 
that everything has fixed and that your choices don't matter, here's what that has probably produced in your life. If you've been taught everything's fixed and your choices don't matter, your life probably looks, or you may feel like you're a robot. Your life might look a little bit lazy. I guarantee, well, my hunch is you really struggle to do things in your life that require sacrifice. Because you're no way you're gonna move into something that's hard. If everything's fixed, then you just kinda wanna not be really committed anywhere. You just kind of try to take on what's, whatever's coming and you don't know what it is. There's just this sense of, I don't know, being willing to excuse everything in your life and everything that you do. Or maybe you're on the other side. Maybe you've been taught, whether in the church or not, that your choices are ultimate that you're the one that's in control of everything in your life. If that's the case, then I bet your life looks an awful lot like still living under the illusion of control, not wanting to face that. Your life may look a lot like outcome-based everything because deep down you actually think that your choice determines everything and that you're in control. So if you just do the right things, you can control the outcome and get what you want. So you're obsessed over yourself and obsessing over what you want. And you're always trying to find new tricks and methods in order to get the result that you want because you've been taught that your choices are ultimate. And I want you to understand the Bible doesn't agree with either of those options. Both of them are fixated on the wrong thing. And both of them miss the main thing. Paul gives us this in Romans 8. God gives us this through Paul. This idea of what he's talking about here because he's trying to comfort us. There are other places in the scripture where he goes into ins and outs of everything, but not here, so I won't either. But if you want to talk more about it, we can. In chapter 9, we're going to get more. But Paul is writing this to you and to me to comfort us and to encourage us. He's writing so that we might realize how big God is and how powerful he is. You see, Let me see if I can put it this way. He's writing this to recalibrate who we are. So we're understanding who God is and what he does. So we can understand how we fit into that. I got this quote from a guy that lived 130 years ago. Maybe it'll encourage you. It certainly does me. This is what he said. I believe in the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I would never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find any reason in myself why he should look upon me with such special love. 
Let me put that in 2022 language. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, at some point in your life, you must have met someone, hopefully you've met many people, that don't claim God, that don't claim Jesus at all. Surely at some point in your experience, you have met someone who doesn't believe in Jesus and doesn't follow Jesus, and they are more thoughtful than you are, they are more generous than you are, they are more kind than you are. Surely that's happened in your life. And if that has happened in your life, you should internalize that to the point in which you understand, I didn't become a Christian because I'm better than someone else, because I made better decisions, because I'm more moral, because I have a moral compass. Surely you can internalize recognizing who you see and who you know, what you observe about them, and realize that, that you're not a follower because of anything you've done. Surely you've had that experience. And it hasn't made you think to yourself, oh, well those people, I mean, I'm I'm so much better than they are, so I need to avoid them. Surely it's made you think about your walk with God. Surely it's made you think about Jesus to the point where you had to come to grips with, well, why am I a follower of Jesus? Can't because I'm nicer than people. Can't be because I'm more moral. And when you get to that point, maybe for the first time in your life, you are realizing that there is someone who loves you for you. Not for what they can get out of you. Not for what you've done. Not for what you will do. Not for what you could do. But they love you for you. Because God is the author of that kind of love. And that is the power of love that changes the world. Paul is wanting us to be recalibrated so that we realize that God has loved us before we were born. That God has been pursuing us through good things and bad things. That God is the one who makes our relationship with him right. That God is the one who is conforming us through everything that's going on into the image of Jesus. And that God will bring us home. He will make us perfect. And we're supposed to be recalibrated with all of that because, beloved, if Dave could lose his salvation, he would. I would. I would have lost it last year. I would be on my way to losing it now. God, nothing can separate us from the love of God because of all that God has done through Jesus. So how do we live into the conclusion? Let's do this quickly. How do we live into the conclusion? Well, we gotta practice gospel habits. Let me look at verse 31. What shall we say to these things? What are we gonna do about all this? Paul's been given all this amazing stuff, so what are we gonna say? What are we gonna say about all this? 
Then you look at verse 32 through the end, basically center around five questions. I'll tell you what they are quickly and then try to apply them. Five questions. Well, verse 32, who can be against us? Verse 32, oh sorry, that was verse 31. Verse 32, will God give us all things? Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Verse 34, who is it that condemns? Then finally, who will separate us? Who will separate us? Those are the five questions that he lays out for us to think about and to wrestle with. And you do realize that those five questions are the rocks that come at your windshield, right? And the ones that you throw at others and scratch others with and dent others with. Accusations, condemning, you get to the end of yourself and think, well, I don't have any resources left, God. What else you got for me? Because I got nothing here. Will he really give me all things that I need? Feel the weight of that? These are the questions that are really rocks that come in our windshield all the time. How long has it been since you've been to the eye doctor? You remember what it's like to go to the eye doctor? You know, they put this thing in front of you. And then you got to figure out what's wrong with your eyes. So you look through different lenses, right? And they keep flipping the lenses until the picture that they have you looking at becomes clear, right? Well, what we need is a gospel lens. What we need is the right lens to look at everything that's happening in life. So let's take two of these five questions and run them through the different lenses to see how you can live the conclusion that there's no separation between you and the love of God. Let's take, let's take uh, we'll generalize a couple of the questions into um, criticism and the question in verse 32 about, uh, we'll basically say that one is, I'm out of options, right? Will God give me all things? In other words, I'm out of options, Lord. What else you got? You got something for me? Because I'm out. I got nothing left. Well, whenever you have conflict, or whenever you get to the end of yourself and you feel like you're out of options, if you're processing all that through the first lens, the lens of everything's fixed, and what you decide and want to do doesn't matter at all, if you come in, in contact with conflict or you get to the end of yourself and you're thinking everything's fixed, then how you're gonna process that conflict is this. I'm running. I don't want anything to do with this. I'm not gonna engage it. I don't wanna talk about it. I wanna sweep it under the rug. I just wanna get out of here. Which means that your life is probably very stagnant. You probably feel purposelessness in your life. You probably feel like I'm not really growing very much because you won't deal with it. You just feel like everything's fixed and my choices don't matter, so I guess it's just the way it is. If you run conflict and being at the end of yourself and out of options through lens number two, which is thinking that you determine everything and your choices are ultimate, then in every conflict, in every situation when you feel like you're at the end of yourself, that's where you ramp up control. That's where you white-knuckle your way through something. That's where you're ever-presently conscious of your own image. It's where you love to be because you love being motivated by deficit. 
That's what gets you going. That here I am in this, in this situation of conflict. Here's where I am. We're at the end of myself, and it's time to ramp up. You love competition, and you love, love, love being motivated by something that you're not. And friends, again, the Bible says both of those are wrong. They both, miss, they both miss the main thing. Because if you come across conflict or get to the end of yourself, and you process that through the lens of the gospel, guess what happens? When you get to the end of yourself or you come face to face with conflict, you get to hear that straight on and you get to deal with whether or not what someone says is true. And if what they say is true, then guess what? You get to repent and say, you're right. I was wrong. And where you're right, you get to defend the truth. And all along the way, it's not just that you get to repent and believe, it's that you actually get to celebrate. You know, when you face conflict or you get to the end of yourself and you get to celebrate the fact that, uh, I don't know, prayer is becoming more instinctive than running to your anxiety. That calling your good friends ones that you're really open with and really talk about your life with becomes more instinctive than the spiral of anxiety that just ends you up nowhere except self-absorbed. It means that when you face conflict or when you get to the end of yourself, you get to celebrate the fact that life is not about wins and losses but in the way that God has made you and remade you through the gospel, everything is a building block. Everything. Because he's conforming you to the image of his son. So that means he's gonna, you know, round off those sharp edges on us. It means he's gonna encourage us. It means we get to celebrate the fact that God is at work in our lives and we actually see change. And we're becoming more and more resistant to being defensive or overly angry. We're becoming resistant to those things. And we're becoming more welcoming to truth. And that Christ defines who we are. And friends, that's what brings us to the table. Do you remember the night that Jesus was betrayed? You remember that night? 